Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Laura Kelly, a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Mark Warren, the author of the new book, Willful Defiance, The Movement to Dismantle the School-to-Prison Pipeline. Mark Warren, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do in education? Sure. Um, I'm a professor of public policy and public affairs at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. And I'm a a sociologist, uh, but I consider myself a community-engaged scholar or a more uh, activist scholar. So uh, I've been studying, but also working with and partnering with community organizing groups, parent and youth organizing groups, working for uh, racial equity, educational justice, and community liberation for uh, over 25 years now. And so uh, the research that I do, I uh, believe or, or intend for it to be producing scholarly knowledge, public knowledge that's relevant to policy and to educators, but also uh, knowledge that can support uh, strengthening the grassroots movement for educational justice, because I believe that it's only through uh, a, a large-scale movement for educational justice that we're really really going to transform our schools in a way that will support the development of of all children, particularly low-income children of color. So that's really my mission, if you will. So Willful Defiance is, uh, I think, the latest uh, product or book from, you know, work that I've been doing for 25 years and partnerships that I've developed with organizing groups over those years. Great. So let's jump into talking about Willful Defiance. This is a book, the subtitle is um, The Movement to Dismantle the School-to-Prison Pipeline. So first, just tell us what is the School-to-Prison Pipeline and why did you want to study it now? So the School-to-Prison Pipeline refers to uh, an interlocking set of institutions that really place uh low-income children of color, particularly black boys, but also girls and Latinx and indigenous students as well, uh, on the road from school to uh, the criminal justice system. And so we can think about it very specifically as discipline policies and practices in schools that suspend uh, large percentages of students of color for things like willful defiance, that's where the title comes from, that in, in actual fact, in many, in almost every state in the country, uh, students can be suspended or, or even expelled eventually for something called willful defiance or disrupting school. So these are often minor behavioral things like, you know, not taking your cap off if you're told to take your cap off or uh, could be more substantial challenges like, you know, why are the textbooks on our history that we're studying, you know, produced in Texas? Are, are these really reflecting the history that we should be talking? Well, that's cha- that could be considered defying uh, authority in the school. So, uh, and this is a large scale problem. So just thinking about suspensions, for example, um, over, over three quarters of all black students in the state of Texas um, are being suspended at some point 
in their uh, secondary school experience. So if, if you're a black boy with disabilities, 89% of those students are suspended from school. So that's almost every single one. Um, so discipline practices that really suspend large numbers of students. And you know when students are suspended, they're not in school. They're often out on the streets being engaged with uh, police or others, uh, either for mischief or out of discrimination or for, you know, even causing trouble, but they're not in school and learning and they're more likely to end up in the criminal justice system. They're also more likely to drop out of school. If you're suspended often, you're not, you're often unlikely to finish school and that makes you more subject to uh, imprisonment. So there's a set of things and then around discipline policies. And then the other specific area is the presence of uh, police officers or what are sometimes called school resource officers in schools who are uh, often, so often students are engaging with law enforcement and being referred to law enforcement and actually even often arrested in right in school and sent into the criminal justice system. And once again, this is not a small problem. A quarter of a million students are referred to law enforcement every year in school 65,000 students are arrested in school um, every year. And then, um, you know, once again, these are racially disproportionate. So, you know, black boys are three times more likely to be arrested than white boys. Black girls are actually six times more likely to be arrested than uh, white girls. And these are oftentimes, once again, arrests for oftentimes minor behavioral infractions, not the kind of serious issues of weapons or things like that that we often hear about obviously those occur but they're rare uh the vast majority of referrals to law enforcement are really for discipline issues so these are the kinds of things that directly send uh, children uh on the road to the criminal justice system so uh i got interested in this because um uh, for several reasons if you want me to continue on this way so first of all, I have been out in communities talking with parents and young people because I've been doing research on community organizing efforts around education reform for many years and hadn't been so focused on this issue. But as I spent time in living rooms with parents or as I spent time listening to students, more and more, this is sort of mid-2000s, mid-late 2000s decade, more and more students were saying, you know, our schools feel like prisons. We have, you know, we're tired of going through metal detectors and fencing and being searched in our schools and then being, you know, uh, harassed by school resource officers, being ticketed, being arrested by police, parents telling us, you know, our, our, our students, you know, our children are being suspended. And, you know, when we try to go in and ask questions about it, we're often bullied. Sometimes we're, police are called on us. And so I was listening to that and uh, realizing that, you know, more and more, this was becoming the key, maybe the key pivotal issue in, you know, what was going on in the failures of our educational system towards uh, students of color. I also uh, had some personal uh, family and friend network experiences, which I do share a little bit in the book. Uh, I am in a... uh, married to a, a black woman who's a public school teacher and our, we had a black, beautiful black biracial daughters. And as our older daughter was entering middle school, we were starting to see the, this harsh kind of discipline 
experience uh, what's often called zero tolerance discipline uh, being practiced and come down hard on the black students at the school, but not the white students at the school. And so our daughter, who had always loved education and loved schooling, was now becoming alienated from school. And so uh, I was starting to see this in my own you know, family and our friendship network. And that, I think, was very important. And then uh, I'll share the third, which was that, um, and this is a big important theme of the book, for many years, uh, community organizing efforts of parents and young people had really been local affairs. People try to organize in Boston, where I live, or in Chicago, or in smaller places in Denver. And you could almost draw a box around them. They were local, really, organizing efforts. But as that mid-2000s and late-2000s decade started rolling out, it became clearer and clearer that you know the forces that these local groups were contending with were really nationally organized. The school to prison pipeline is not only a local phenomenon. It plays out locally, but it was developed nationally in terms of the policies and practices that were spread around the country in terms of the stereotypes that there are bad and dangerous students out there who need to be removed from our schools so that, quote unquote, the good kids can learn. I mean, what happens when 90% of the kids are the bad kids that you're now trying to remove, right? That's the question. Um, so uh, I became interested in the, the school to prison pipeline movement was really the first one that emerged as a national movement based in local organizing, but connected up nationally. And so the movement was really trying to organize at multiple levels around local policy, around state policy, and around federal policy. And I wanted to study that and work with those organizations, the Dignity in Schools campaign, which was the largest national coalition, and the Alliance for Educational Justice, which was a national uh, alliance of youth organizing groups focused on school-to-prison pipeline issues. So these became uh, my research partners, I reached out to them and spent a lot of time trying to build a relationship with them, building trust, getting to know them, and then developing the project that became Willful Defiance kind of in partnership with them. Great. So I'm wondering if you can let us know when organizing against the school to prison pipeline is effective, what policy gains do advocates win? In other words, can you provide us an overview of some of the successes that you document in the book? Yeah, so uh, absolutely. So, um, you know, first of all, I think it's important to understand that when this movement began, well, I actually trace it back to the mid-1990s in the Mississippi Delta when, you know, black parents first started to challenge uh, what they called the school, uh, the schoolhouse to jailhouse track. That was the terminology they were using at the time, but the same, basically same idea as school to prison pipeline. Um, you know, as the movement started getting together around 2007, 2008, and these groups were forming, zero tolerance was really the law of the land. It was enshrined in every, almost every school district's policy, in almost every state policy. It was it was the pol it was the recommended policy of the federal government. Both national teachers unions, you know, uh, explicitly endorsed zero tolerance school discipline. All national education associations all supported zero tolerance. It, and you know, parents and young people, when they first started challenging this, they were told, "You're crazy. We're not going to. You know, this is never going to change." And you know, within six or seven years, 
uh, you know, they had built a foundation already, but within six or seven years, uh, they really started to shift the tide on this. And, uh, um, you know, it was a combination of organizing locally, but also, you know, waging the fight kind of nationally around public discourse, challenging the ideology that underpinned it. And then in district after district, trying to roll back and actually change zero tolerance policies. So uh, that started, the first win was in uh, 2007 in Los Angeles, where when a black and brown parent organization called Cadre were the grassroots force behind uh, the first challenge to zero tolerance and got the school district to uh, endorse alternatives like restorative justice or what was they called at the time uh, school-wide positive behavior intervention supports. In other words, let's support students who are having issues rather than discipline and punishing them, right? Or let's develop a process of restorative justice where we address the root causes of uh, if there are behavioral problems rather than disciplining and expelling students out of the school, which doesn't solve anything and then sends those children on the road to prison. So uh, in district after district, uh, organizing efforts started to change policies. And so in finally in Los Angeles in 2011, I think it was, the, they won uh, something called the School Climate Bill of Rights. And that actually officially changed the policy and uh, banned uh, suspending students, uh, I think it was up to fifth grade, I'll have to check on the exact grade, for uh, willful defiance. It was later extended beyond that. It was then extended to the state level and the state policy passed. And in places like Los Angeles, where there has been very intensive organizing, the number of -of out-of-school suspensions dropped uh, rapidly. I think there were um, about 75,000 days lost to suspensions in 2007 or eight when this started and 10 years later it was down to 4500 so that's a radical drop other localities and states did not experience such a dramatic drop but uh, rates are started to go down in all the places where these policies were changed so the first the first level was uh, actually changing policy to so that uh, schools could not suspend students for things like willful defiance and then winning the implementation of alternatives like positive behavioral intervention supports and restorative justice. So, you know, because teachers are asking, well, I can't uh, suspend a student. What am I going to do? Right now, I think the the other issue that we really have to raise here is that, you know, a lot of times students are being disciplined for things that aren't misbehavior. Uh, you know, they're being stereotyped and, and punished. And so we also have to look at the culture of the school. It's not just about, uh, you know, different ways of handling student behavior. It's also about different ways of building relationships with students and with families that are more connected and more supported and a, 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 a curriculum that is more relevant and engaging for young people. You know, I started out saying, we can talk about the school to prison pipeline as about discipline policy and about policing practices. Absolutely. But there's a larger context here that's, it, that's, you know, alienating students from our school. So schools, so we have to talk about who are the teachers in our schools? Uh, what is the, you know, how relevant is the curriculum? What are the set of relationships? You know, do, do, do students feel like this is a home for them, that people really care about them in the school, or are they being, you know, kind of alienating 
alienated from school. So there's a number of things that have to go on that, that to really transform our schools. But if we want to talk about changing policies and reducing uh, suspensions and expulsions, the movement has absolutely been successful in at least starting that process. And in places like LA, very, very successful. It can't, you know, and I think that's part of the theme of the book. You know, there has to, you know, we have to lift up and highlight stories of successes. And I'm sure you may know this as a, as a professor or a teacher, you know, we can talk about systemic racism, we can talk about white supremacy, and that's important. And, and students need to, and the, the public and educators need to understand how that works. But if we're going to change it, we also have to have strategies and we have to have hope that you can change it, right? Uh, and so I think the book is trying to be, you know, cautiously hopeful. We're not pie in the sky here. This is a, this system is still in place. We're still working on it, still fighting it. But, you know, progress has been made. And certainly in terms of removing police from schools, <clears throat> you know, in the wake of the George, George Floyd protests in 2020, uh, school districts did start passing policies to remove armed police from schools. And uh, once again, when the, in 2012, uh, an organization called the Black Organizing Project in Oakland in 2012 said, we're going to, our goal is to remove police from all Oakland schools in, within 10 years. They were told, you're crazy. What are you talking about? You can't remove police from schools. That's just the way it is now. Lo and behold, 10 years later, Oakland School District passed a resolution removing police from schools. And so it was the foundation. What people don't understand, it was not just the protests around uh, the police racism in the wake of George Floyd, George Floyd. That was part of it. It was also the foundation that organizing groups like the Black Organizing Project have been working on this for eight, nine years by then. They already had resolutions written that they had been submitting. They had already been cultivating um allies on school boards they had already been doing the the educational work for parents uh and and young people and students to understand that the reality is that police are not keeping our students safe from school there's actually no research-based evidence that police improve safety in school for students or anyone um most of the evidence does show that the presence of police from schools takes the focus away from uh, teaching and learning towards punishment and discipline. It also, uh, in the schools with police, students are more likely to be arrested and or referred to law enforcement that in schools, similar schools without police. So there are negative consequences to the police in schools with, with basically no positive consequence. And most police and SROs that are called in to handle situations are handling, as I mentioned before, handling minor behavioral issues that would never have amounted to a police outside of a school, a police would never be called for those kinds of things. So police are doing things in school that are far beyond <clears throat> what the police force was established to do out in the community. And, and of course, rightly or wrongly there. And we can talk about abolition and other alternatives to policing in communities too, but certainly police have no place in schools. And people need to understand that they haven't always been there either. So uh, if you go back to the 1970s, there were a total of 100 armed police officers in all U.S. public schools total across the country, 100. You know, by the early 2000s, there were 65,000. And then that number has only increased and it's over 100,000 now. And, and uh, up until the last couple of years have been continuing to grow. Now it's a tumultuous period. 
they've been removed from schools. Some schools they've been brought back in. There's a lots of uh, of uh, debate over the whole issue right now of police in schools. As a researcher, you've mentioned working with these organizing groups and trying to lift up and collaborate with grassroots student and parent organizations working for racial justice. Can you talk a bit about your approach to community-engaged work, including some of the ethical conflicts that arise and how to gain the trust of the communities that you want to work with? Sure. Yeah. Um, So, you know, uh, early in my, uh, I I had been a, uh, just to share a little bit of my story, I had been a community and labor organizer uh, prior to getting a PhD uh, for seven, eight years. And so when I entered my PhD program, I really wanted to do work that, you know, was more uh, in partnership or was more directly relevant, at least I think as I understood it then. I really rejected the idea of scholars studying communities from afar or studying down on communities. And, you know, I wanted to uh, do work that was more connected. And I believed, I deeply believed that organizers and regular people, uh, we didn't want to just learn about them. We also needed to learn from them that they had ideas and theories and experiential, experientially based wisdom or analytically based wisdom that was important to be part of the research process. And so, uh, you know, I wanted to take that kind of partnership approach really from the beginning. And, you know, uh, now I am a white male uh, professor. I did come from a blue collar background. And I think that makes a difference. You know, I, 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 you know, I came from a, a, uh, out of an Italian immigrant heritage of people who, you know, were modest and struggled, you know, and, and just got by. And so I, I, you know, I think that matters too, but still, you know, I'm a white male going into communities. And, uh, so, you know, I'm very careful about that. And I, I try to spend a lot of time building relationships, having people get to know me, uh, sharing our experiences and our values, sharing my story with people, uh, listening to their concerns, sometimes being challenged uh, and having to be respectful and change, you know, the way I want to do things. Uh, For example, in this project, uh, I was really challenged that, well, if I was going to raise money to do the research, can I also raise money to directly support the movement in, in ways? So, for this Willful Defiance project, part of the money I raised was to, to help the Dignity Schools campaign put together a toolkit of resources for organizing groups to use. So it wasn't going to be just a book that came out of this, that it was also going to be a toolkit of resources um, and spent a lot of time working on that. Um, <clears throat> some personal challenges, too, um, along the way. I uh, was asked by a foundation <clears throat> to bring together... Uh, different parts of this, not just the school to prison pipeline movement, but the educational justice movement more broadly, and to try to put a book together that would sort of express this this new arising of a new educational justice movement, not that we never have, we have always had one, but kind of a new iteration of it. And I was challenged uh, by some of the organizers to say, well, you know, you're already working on this Woeful Defiance book. You're already writing all these books. Why can't we write our own uh, essays? Why can't we write our own stories, not just filtered through you, you know, but also on, on our own voices? 
And so that was uh, a, an important challenge to me. I said, all right, uh, why don't I help you write your, well, I'll use my skills and my talents and my resources, not to actually do the writing myself, but to help you write. And so we put together a book called Lift Us Up, Don't Push Us Out, Voices from the Front Lines of the Educational Movement. And I, it's a kind of a curated collection of essays by organizers and activists that I help them write, but they are the authors of their own essays. And of course, I put help put the thing together and all that. So it is a partnership there. But, you know, that I think is an example of saying, well, you know, you know, these issues of white privilege, you know, I have the privileges of being uh, a white male professor. How do I use those privileges, you know, not just to reinforce the system of hierarchy, but as a resource for folks on the ground who are organizing? So these are just a couple of examples of, I think, the way I've tried to work in partnership and, you know, listen to the concerns of people. And, you know, I think... We out of this whole all these efforts, we actually have formed something called the People's Think Tank on Educational Justice, because uh, we were kind of wrapping up the books, and people said, "Well, we don't want this to end." You know, yes, you we're going to keep working with these books, but why can't we have our own think tank where we set a research agenda and uh, work with you, Mark, and other activist scholars around an agenda that we decide. Uh, rather than that's decided by funders or scholars or whatever. So we now have a people's think tank and we are doing a partnership, uh, continuing our partnership action research and movement building work uh, from there. So, uh, yeah. That's exciting to hear about all those connections and the that additional work that came out of this project. Um, can you tell us... Uh, so some of these organizations have been effective in either ending zero tolerance policies or getting police out of schools. If the organizations that are working against the school to prison pipeline were to win the policy victories that they're working on now, what's your sense of what's next for racial justice in education? Yeah, that, no, that's a very good question. So I, I, was kind of a minute ago talking about the school to prison pipeline as a kind of a pivot or central feature of how our school systems are failing or, you know, perpetuating injustice, perpetuating a, a, a system that's in a society that is based on, you know, class and racial uh, hierarchy. Uh, you know, if some people are being disadvantaged, other people are being advantaged by this system, right? But it's not the only thing. And so, you know, I was talking more about, you know, how do we, how do we um, fund our schools and the inequities and the way we fund schools, the way our, our curriculum you know, is may or may not be culturally relevant, who teaches in our schools. The vast majority of teachers who teach children of color are white teachers. You know, white people can do important work. I'm white. Uh, but Children also see, need to see teachers who look like them, and there's a lots of evidence about the greater effectiveness of teachers of color and working with teachers. You know, so there's, and then we can talk about well, how are children going to learn well if they're living in poverty, if they're living in communities that have been you know devastated by environmental injustice, if they're homeless, you know. So we also have to say that 
this is not a, a school issue only. It's a larger issue about what's going on in our society. So what I, I try to think about and what we try to think about is, you know, the school to prison pipeline movement is, 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 is the beginning of a conversation. It's the beginning of a movement. It's not the end. It's, it, it's a key pivot point, and that's why we're focused on it. But it opens up the conversation about these issues around funding and curriculum and school climate, and then the larger conversations about, uh, you know, what do we really need to be doing to create the kind of society that's that really in which, you know, children and young people can grow and flourish, not just in our schools, but in, you know, in our larger society. And so I think that's, and so our, our project right now with the People's Think Tank, what was identified by organizers is um, doing kind of action research around intersectional organizing. How do we develop uh, organizing strategies that think about issues in connected ways? Because we're too siloed, right? Even though we have to focus on, something, if we're going to create change in that thing, we're weaker. Um, if we only focused on one area, everybody's focused on their own area and it's not connected. You know, we've got housing folks over here. We've got economic justice folks over here. We've got education folks over here. Even within the education movement, we have school to prison pipeline folks over here. We've got people working on, uh, on school funding issues over there. So it's siloed. And so the vision of what we really need is weaker. The policy solutions are weaker, but also the movements are weaker because they're all divided. And so that's our exciting, I think, you know, what we're working on now and we're interviewing people and we're going to, we're trying to identify promising emerging uh, strategies that people are using to connect issues and uh, think in bigger ways about uh, how to build a movement for educational justice that's connected across to other movements for social justice. So I think that's where the movement is going. And that's, you know, with my work, because I'm so sure try to be, you know, as best I can connected to people who are organizing ground, I'm always trying to move with where's the movement going and what are the issues that are cutting edge right now? Um, and can I help? Uh, in some way, as a partner, as an ally, as a co-conspirator, whatever word we want to use uh, to be, you know, uh, supporting that movement and building knowledge that uh, that will speak to a broader audience, as I'm doing right now, but also knowledge that people on the ground can use as well. So that takes my last question, which is, what are you working on now? So instead, I'll ask you if there's anything else that you would like to say about the book or the school to prison pipeline or anything else that you may be working on now that you want to share. Yeah, I think I would just like to say that, you know, <clears throat> we, I think, are understanding more and more deeply how much our public educational system is rooted in white supremacy. And I think there was always some understanding of that, of folks on the ground. It was a hard conversation to have. I think more and more we're understanding it. And if that's really true, then, you know, the solutions that we have to be looking for are really going to be, have to be transformative solutions. And a big, big part of those solutions has to come from the folks who are on the ground, whether it's in black or brown or indigenous communities, parents and young people and other community members who have been uh, educating young people in their community, uh, helping young people grow and develop despite racism, 
right? Helping young people flourish as best they can. What do they have to say? What do they have to offer for an educational system that's really going to be one that will allow young people to grow and develop and to, to liberate themselves. And, and, you know, I'm a scholar. I think scholars have a role to play. Research has a role to play. Educators and policymakers have something to say too. But for too long, we look, we look for the solution uh, solely within academia or in some partnership. When people think about partnerships, they think about partnerships between school districts and universities. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the solutions, we don't look uh, for the solutions in places that have actually been uh, helping people not just survive, but also hopefully um, uh, flourish in, in, in our communities and in our families. And, and so I think that's what I'd like to be saying to educators and to policymakers and even to the broader public that is so used to looking to ex- so-called experts for the analysis. Part of the whole purpose of the book, Willful Defiance, was to really lift up the voices and the wisdom and the experience of uh, black and brown indigenous parents, students themselves who are in our schools and really have deep understanding of their own experiences there and important ideas and, and strategies and solutions that we need to identify. There would not be, we would not have, uh, you know, it wasn't scholars like myself who challenged, who named and who first named and challenged the school to prison pipeline. And it wasn't policymakers. It wasn't educators. It wasn't the traditional civil rights community. It was none of those people. Um, we got involved as the movement built, but the first people to really name, identify and build this movement were, were, were people like, you know, African-American parents in Holmes County, Mississippi, one of the poorest counties, heart of the slave system in the South, who were really the first to name it and to start to challenge it. And so if, if we really understand that and appreciate that, what is the meaning of that? What's the significance of that? Well, to me, the significance is that these are the places that we have to be looking and, and lifting up and partnering with um, if we're gonna really transform our education system towards you know, equity and justice and liberation. Thank you so much for this interview and these details. Um, This was a really helpful overview of the major issues in the book. um, And I really appreciate you coming on the show today. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Thank you for inviting me.